Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Katie Arms. It's November 28, 2023. And we have dogs with us as well. We're at the new Patton Valley Tasting Room in McMinnville. Um, And thank you so much to Patton Valley for letting us use this space. Justine, that was very nice of you. Thank you. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate that as well. Uh, And the first question is, why wine? Uh, Because not yogurt. Um, There's a story there, obviously. Um, I kind of found wine on accident, uh, as a lot of people do. And I'm also really lucky that I found it young. I was like 20 when I got into wine. And I went to Oklahoma State University, and I was majoring in PR, after changing it from ag business. Like I went a whole journey, you know, before finding hospitality management. Um, I had one of those conversations with a friend that you hear about people having, you know, that one conversation that totally changes the trajectory of your life. Uh, That happened to me two times (laughs) in a very short uh, span while I was in college. So, I changed my major to hospitality management because of a conversation I had with a guy who was a line cook at the steakhouse I was working at. Um, We were closing up one night and he was like, hey, Katie, what's your major? And I was like, oh, PR, but I don't really know if I'm gonna stick to that. I'm just kind of, you know, figuring things out. I think I was a sophomore. And he was like, "Uh, why? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I don't don't know. I think I would be good at, you know, some sort of journalism, so. Uh, he was like, have you ever thought about doing hospitality management? And I was like, that's a thing you could do in college. I had no idea. Um, and he was kind of explaining to me about like what it all entailed. It was hotel and restaurant administration. Um, you know, wine was sort of an adjacent thing within the program that I didn't even know or care about at the time. Um, but he was like, why don't you have a meeting with my advisor? And I was like, okay, I'd be happy to. He's like, I just think you'd be really good at it. I think you'd be happy. And I was like, that's really sweet of you to notice. So anyway, I did have a meeting with his advisor and pretty quickly changed my major. Um, my parents were not impressed, Uh, (laughs) but I think they are now. Uh, I know they are now. That's not fair. I know they are now. Um, They let me kind of pave my own way, which I appreciated very much. Um, Anyway, so I had to take a class called Wine 101 or Wine Tasting 101, um, and you had to be 21. So it was like the semester of my senior year before I took a half extra loop around. And the professor was an adjunct professor. He actually had um, a wine brokerage in Oklahoma. Uh, It was a four-tier state then. Um, Anyway, so he was like, what are you going to do for your internship? After I kind of, I don't know, made myself known in the class. I'm sort of precocious, I guess. (laughs) But um, he, you know, I think saw something in me and asked me about my future plans and um, I said, oh, I'm going to open Pink Berries in Dallas, Texas. You know the yogurt shop? Yeah, they hadn't quite hit that middle middle market yet. And uh, 
I thought it would be great. It was introducing a new brand and concept into a new market. And I figured I'd learn a lot, but I kind of saw myself at that point, maybe going to work for Darden, you know, the restaurant group that has Red Lobster, you know, and nothing wrong with Red Lobster. I would kind of want that, those cheesy biscuits. <laughs> anyway, um, so I didn't really know still. I had just found hospitality a short time before that as like a program. And so uh, he goes, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, uh, what am I going to do then? And he said, I think you should come work for me at my wine brokerage in Oklahoma City for the summer as an intern and sort of see what wine sales is like. And I was like, um, I just made a C in your class. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I know. But anything that you don't know about wine, I can teach you. And you've got the rest. And I was very humbled and honored, and I thought that was really cool. So I, I took a shot. He actually helped me get a job that summer as well at our local bottle shop, um, Brown's Bottle Shop, shout out, Stillwater, Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> that's really where I cut my teeth on wine. And I did go do my internship there, and I kind of ran around the whole state of Oklahoma that summer, putting shelf talkers out, making sure things are updated, dropping off books, you know. And um, I worked there after school. He offered me a job in December of the following year when I left OSU. And I, oh no, these are my dogs. Um, one is Orla. She's the big uh, black labradoodle looking thing. She's actually a golden doodle bergamasco mix. Um, she was adopted yesterday. And that is Norman. He is my very first foster baby. I've had him for about four weeks from the Portland Docks and Rescue. So I only have him a couple more weeks, but he is still posturing with his temporary sister. <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, uh, I walked in and today and said chaos is, you know, the language that I speak. And it's true. And I have just had to embrace that. And this is what we do in the archives. We capture it as it is. So thank you for bringing chaos along oh with you. Oh my gosh, you're welcome. Any, anytime, just phone call away for chaos. Anyway, so I did go work in Oklahoma City that summer. I worked at the bottle shop. And in December of the following year, I was offered a job with the wine brokerage. And I worked there a couple of years. And in this, let's see, July of 2012, they brought the whole team to the Willamette Valley to meet our um, suppliers here. We were repping Raptor Ridge and Alexana and Irie and oh Bergstrom and some of the big names. You know, we were a small team in Oklahoma, but we had a lot of the most sought after stuff, which was really cool. I kind of got spoiled in that way. I didn't have to schlep any like uh, you know, $5 bottles of wine, let's just say. Um, and I was really, um, excited about coming out here, but I had like never really known much about Oregon other than Willamette Valley because I had to sell those wines. And, um, we also went to Walla Walla and saw some of our producers there. And I just really fell in love with the West Coast. I hadn't spent any time on the West Coast really at that point. Um, and I moved out here in September, just before harvest. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that is a thing that people do, I guess. Um, it's hard not to love Oregon, but I definitely um, am one of those. But at least I'm from Oklahoma. <laughs> and there's a big contingency of us out here, I think. Um, I've met a lot of people from Oklahoma, not only in the wine industry, but... but uh, 
um, also just kind of randomly in Portland. It's where I live now, but I did spend my first five years down here in wine country. So yeah, so wine I kind of found on accident through those two conversations with people who saw something in me that I didn't know was there. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I found wine. Talk a little bit about uh, life before wine. So tell us about uh, where you're born and raised and sort of life before college. Life before college, yeah. So I was born and raised um, on a small farm in Oklahoma, um, 160 acres just south of Lawton, Oklahoma in the town of Faxon. Uh, my parents still live there, and my sister's actually living there as well with her husband and their baby, Blakely. Um, they're building a home on the opposite side of the property, and I moved half a country away. Um, so I was active in the FFA and the 4-H growing up. My dad was actually an ag teacher when I was born until 20, oh no, not 20, 1994-ish, I think. And then he got into some broadcast journalism as well. And my mother was always in banking. She was a mortgage lender for 35 years. And I was the eldest of two kids, me and Kelsey. She's six years younger than me. Um, and we just had this wonderful little family. I don't know, I, I, I enjoyed growing up. My parents are amazing. My sister's incredible. Like, I'm very lucky. Um, my dad ended up going from like the radio doing a farm and ranch report to the local news doing a farm and ranch report. And then he actually ended up working with my mom for a short time because at the bank they managed, um, we actually ended up moving from the east side of Lawton, Oklahoma to the west side to a town called Cash, which is where I graduated high school. And um, they managed the bank branch that um, went up in Cash together. And he ran for political office. Um, I won't tell his whole story, but basically, um, he got into politics on accident, like I got into wine on accident, and then made it his life and his career, and he is still in politics to this day. And that was back when I was still in junior high, I think sixth grade. So anyway, that was kind of amazing. And my mom retired recently to stay home with Blakely. Uh, it's her only grandbaby, it's her first grandbaby. And uh, anyway, she, yeah, she um, is loving that. And I moved out here in 2012, so I've basically graduated high school from Cash, Oklahoma in 06, moved to Stillwater, was in Stillwater for four and a half years at OSU. I went to Oklahoma City to work for the wine brokerage that I worked for, and then lived there a few years, and then 2012, I made my way out here. So tell me about making that jump from visiting the valley for the first time to moving out here two months later. Um, yeah, it was impulsive, as have many of the decisions in my life have been, but um, when I came out here in July of 2012, I had been working at the brokerage for a couple of years, um, and there were some things that happened, and when I came back from this trip, um, I was really gung-ho about Oregon and like super excited to sell those wines, and I just had a wonderful time, couldn't wait to come back to visit. I think I was like 22, uh, almost 23, and or maybe I just turned 23. I can't math very well right now. Um, but I was excited to maybe come back someday or maybe even move to wine country and like work at a winery. I was young. It made sense that that could be in my future. And when I got home, I actually lost my job. 
Um, it was my first time to ever get fired, like actually get fired. Um, and I was really freaked out. Come to find out down the road, it wasn't me. It was one of those, like, it wasn't me, it was them kind of a situation. Um, but that's a story for more wine. Um, and anyway, I um, came out here just after that. I think I stayed another, like, month or so. And I moved out here just before harvest. And I found a harvest job like when I got here I had two thousand dollars to my name and I think a thousand of that came from my dad buying my bedroom furniture from me to put in a rent house or something I mean seriously it's ridiculous I and so talk about impulsive um, but it worked and I think it worked because I knew I had a fallback my parents were always going to be there if I needed to move home you know in fact my dad offered to fly me out here to see if I liked it and then either like ship my stuff or bring it to me later kind of a thing. Like they really did not want me to do this, but I did, I made it work and I am so grateful that I took that leap. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds. So you mentioned finding a harvest job right away. So tell me about your initial impressions of Oregon and of that first job. That's a great question because I actually love to tell this story. Um, I I love to tell my stories, I guess. I'm very, very talkative. Um, anyway, so I found a job when I first got here um, at Sokol Blosser. I ended up just working a week or so, um, kind of a very quick harvest in 2012. As you remember, I'm sure, 2012 was a quick harvest. Um, all of the fruit was ready to go right up front, um, but it wasn't going to over-ripen because it cooled down very like rapidly and we had a lot of hot, cold, windy days through that harvest. Um, I said hot, cold, windy days? Not hot, cold. We had a lot of sunny, cold, windy days through that harvest and um, it was kind of awesome. The wind was uh, kind of brutal on the crush deck, but I kind of looked around and I was like, why is everybody complaining about how difficult harvest is? Like, there's nobody's running around or crying or cussing or anything. I was like, this is great. And then I worked harvest in 2013 and I ate my words. <laughs> um, but I didn't work a full harvest at Sokol Blosser, uh, but I did get my feet wet for sure. And I kind of found it on accident because I was also looking for a part-time job, you know, in a, in a winery or anywhere at that point, really, just to kind of pay the rent. And I ended up working at Community Plate in downtown McMinnville, part-time there. And then um, I ended up also at Irie part-time. Um, just after harvest. But I found, I think, that job with Sokol Blossers um, through my connections at Community Plate. So why so when you when why production? Why did you want to do a harvest internship? I wanted to know how wine was made like in person and how some of those decisions were made and like I wanted to discover how hard it really was, um, I think, for myself. And I knew that I had grown up on a farm and I was just fully capable of schlepping five gallon buckets and cleaning a lot, you know. So I figured I could I could do it and um I enjoyed that and I again I really wanted to be in touch with what I was doing it's really hard to be a wine rep in Oklahoma or anywhere if you've never spent any time at a winery and so I think that mostly I wanted to like understand how it worked so so you mentioned the first one being kind of a kind of a breeze for you uh, 
Tell me about the second one. Tell me about your first like welcome to wine or welcome to harvest kind of moment. Yeah. So at that time I ended up at White Rose and I was working in their tasting room for a while. And um, it was a really interesting experience going from Irie to White Rose. Um, the uniforms and all of that. But White Rose are very... Uh, interesting from the inside if you will uh but it looks really cool when people walk in there it's like a it's the whole aesthetic is really spot on but anyway i um sort of worked harvest before or after work a lot like so i didn't again do like a full harvest but i was like helping hands and um it rained something like six inches in four days that year yeah right as the fruit was ripe and i will never forget the monsoon, what, what, what do they call it? The atmospheric river. Um, I'll never forget that. It was challenging even just to like exist those days in Oregon, um, not to mention trying to decide whether you were gonna pick in the rain or not, um, not really knowing when the deluge would stop. Um, and so we were just a bunch of like wet rats for six days. It was awful. And the fruit was gross and there were bugs galore, more so than normal. And it was just cold and uncomfortable and I hated it. <laughs> and I was like, I take it back. 2012 was easy, but like, I didn't mean to say it out loud. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that was just, it kind of sucked. And like today, even today, like I still have 13s in my cellar that are, um, you know, some I know were picked before the rain and some were picked after the rain. And I often refer to it as the vintage that separated the men from the boys. Frankly, I, if you didn't know what you were doing, it was real easy to screw that up, so. So, so tell me about the, the other side of wine. Obviously you, you had been, you sold wine in Oklahoma, you were working in kind of hospitality here. Tell me about selling wine and about learning wine from that perspective. What what excited you about learning wine and, and what did you find appealing about selling it? The lifestyle. I feel like that's like a really common answer, but I wasn't making like a ton of money as a 22 year old, but I was able to go to these amazing restaurants in town and have these relationships with the chefs and the owners and the staff and the wine buyers. And I was learning things at every turn from everyone I interacted with. They knew I was young, but I think they saw the same thing in me that, you know, my professor saw in me and my boss, you know. I was worth spending time with, I think, mm -hmm. and I, I made it worth their while by bringing incredible wines. Um, and I was, again, so fortunate to be selling such amazing wines and not having to schlep, you know, cases and we didn't have grocery store wine back then so I was schlepping cases and um, all the Constellation and the Gallo kids you know were their feather dusters in their back pockets like moving cases at six o'clock in the morning and I'm walking in with my sunglasses and a cup of coffee like it just I'm really grateful for that experience <laughs> um, I'm not gonna lie um, but I I don't know um, I was learning a lot and I was, um, I don't know, like I, I enjoyed tasting through things from all over the world. I think we had something in our book, like 500 SKUs at the time. I could be way off. And remember, I made a C in that class. So I was totally learning from the bottom rung of knowledge when it came to wine. My parents weren't big drinkers. Um, my mom to this day still enjoys, you know, a nice barefoot Moscato and I 
that's great. I'm so glad she's drinking wine. Back to where I was about learning about wine and working as a salesperson. I was also, yeah, I, was, I made a C in that class. I was having to um, teach myself a lot because we were a very small team and I was out there on my own and we had all these wines and I didn't know anything about, I didn't even know thing about, things about domestic wine. So I was literally teaching myself and it was a hindrance for sure. It was a challenge. Um, <sighs> And I think it definitely affected my overall performance but I, because I couldn't focus. Mm -hmm. I was calling on basically the entire state, some kind of second tier accounts, you know, that didn't get a lot of love. And I liked that, including my hometown. Like there were a couple of really incredible shops there um, that just didn't get a lot of love because it was, there were two stores to call on an hour and a half away. Mm -hmm. So I got to share the wine love and out there and that was really cool um, and it was appreciated mm -hmm. and I loved that part too. What about the more direct kind of direct consumer hospitality side once you got here? <sighs> yeah, I really appreciated the fact that I could really dive into Oregon and learn as much as I could and you know tell back the story of Oregon and, and Pinot Noir and you know the old absence of Chardonnay and that Chardonnay making its resurgence in the time that I've been here um, and meeting so many cool people. I just love to connect with people. Um, I do get peopled out as well, but I'm like just, I'm an introverted extrovert. Um, but I enjoyed being educated and then being able to educate, you know, um, someone else and I really loved educational things with my teams like um, even just moments of like let's taste this together let's talk about you know tasting notes and how this wine was made and and why you know the choices were made that they were made you know that's all really really important it's what makes every wine different because it's, it's all just Pinot Noir but every single bottle is different here and every vintage is different and just being able to express that and help people learn what they like and um, why they like it and how to find it again, um, which take, please take a picture with your cell phone. And if you're watching this in 20 years, whatever device is <laughs> available to you to track what wine you like. Sorry, that's a pet peeve. <laughs> so um, I also, you know, I didn't, I'm a natural salesperson. I feel like, you know, I, I know how to ask for the sale. I know how to do all the things that we're supposed to do. Um, but I wasn't ever feeling like I had to be forceful. And perhaps that was also a, a downfall, if you will. But um, I feel like people buy things that they like. And I never wanted to, like, force things on people. Um, or that they can afford, frankly, you know, our budgets are all very different and even now with inflation and all of that and, you know, I just wanted to educate people and connect with people. Um, the sales was secondary and perhaps that was <laughs> a problem, but um, I enjoyed myself <laughs> and I learned a lot, you know, so. So after you'd been you'd been here a couple of years, you'd worked kind of some hospitality, you'd worked a couple of harvests or at least partial harvests. What were you thinking at that point? Like, what did you want to do? What were you hoping would be your kind of path forward? Yeah, so I bounced around quite a bit. I think I had a reputation. I developed a reputation as someone who would come in and like fix things. 
it happened a couple of different times for me where I kind of got poached to the next job um, because they needed a fresh face and some excitement and also to like clean house if necessary. And that, that meant employees and it also meant wine club members, like naughty wine club members that ruined things for everyone. You know, there were situations where it was like, I had to posture and deal with the difficulties of DTC. And um, I think I did it well and, and eloquently. Um, and, but, and that was certainly my reputation. And so I, I definitely jumped around a lot. There was a day I would have said to like, own oh, my own winery. Um, I've had a tiny taste of that. And I don't think that that's where I would tell you I wanted to go today. Um, I, at that point, you know, I just wanted to be somewhere for a while and learn as much as I could, um, so I could just become a, a more knowledgeable professional. Um, but I did jump around a lot and I was, I, I, I say that's a bit regrettable for me, um, in some ways, but it helped me avoid burnout, I think for a long time. But I, I really just wanted to manage a winery. I think I wanted to be the GM or something of a small family brand, but I also like wanted to be able to travel and maybe do a little bit of national sales and uh, afford the lifestyle I wanted to live. And that never happened. <laughs> um, it never happened. Um, and that's okay because I am where I am now because of all the random things that happened before. But um, I definitely wish that I could have found some place that I was there a little more long term because I feel like I would be a, a more in depth and knowledgeable wine professional as far as like the business side goes because I'm I got the other stuff I think. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So tell me about some of those other places you worked and kind of other experiences you had along the way. Kind of, kind of give us like some of the maybe some of the highlights or memories. Yeah. Um, so I went from Irie, working there part time. Um, I was there, I think like almost a year, but they didn't have full time for me, and um, I really, really wanted to find a full time job in wine. So I got hired at White Rose. It was such a unique experience. I cannot tell you how different that place still is from any other place in the valley. Uh, the wine is excellent. Um, and I haven't had it lately actually, but I have a bunch in my cellar and I've been tasting like 11s and 12s. And um, I am still really enjoying the 11s and 12s coming from White Rose, which is fun. And uh, that's what I was selling at the time too, you know. I ended up doing a little outside sales for them as well. I was in the tasting room mostly. And then I went from yeah, I read a White Rose, and then from White Rose, I was offered my first management position at Saffron Fields. And I think I was making something like $32,000 a year. And then the other manager who was working with me, eventually I figured out that they were doing some shady business, and I brought it to the attention of the owner, and I ended up becoming the only manager and I didn't get a raise and I didn't, you know, I, I just uh, became basically the GM. 
and I was in charge of the landscaping guy and making sure that when the owner was in Hong Kong that I was communicating with our um, vineyard management team and I was doing direct-to-consumer sales and running the wine club and thank God for Macy Colson um, she was my she was younger than me and I mean at this point I think I'm 24 and we are running this brand new winery together, clueless babies. Um, and we, we did it. We called it office harvest because we weren't working harvest that year, but we were um, still working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> so, you know, office harvest, that, that was, we really had to put the pedal to the metal for a while and it was exhausting. Um, and I certainly got burned out. I basically decided that I was either going to find the next best thing or leave the industry at that point because I had a really challenging relationship with the owners. And rest in peace to Sanjeev. It was such a, a sad loss. Um, and I should say the same about Jesus Guillen. You know, he was my saving grace for a while um, at White Rose. I, it was cold and damp and I was in dark and I was missing my family and all I wanted to do was sit somewhere warm and eat a cup of soup and he let me. He'd come into his lab and hang out with me for in half an hour during my break and just kind of remind me how good at this I was, which was such a sweet thing for him to say, and we would laugh, and sometimes he would give me hot chocolate, and we, you know, it was just such a lovely friendship, and um, I miss him very much. He was such a talented winemaker and, and, and a really good person, so anyway, um, a little bit of loss on the journey, but um, yeah, so I went from Saffron Fields after kind of getting burned out to interviewing with several people, actually. Um, I interviewed with Anthony Van Nuys. We talked about me coming over to the Carlton Winemaker Studio. Um, I remember walking my dogs at the time in the vineyard that I was living on, having a conversation with him, and then having to call Adam um, at Elk Cove back because he had asked me to open the new Pike Road tasting room. And I didn't want to open the new Pike Road tasting room. I wanted to work at Elk Cove. And how are we going to sort that out? And I just remember having these conversations and then suddenly um, deciding I was actually going to go work for some friends of ours in downtown McMinnville who were renovating the Old Oak Bar. It was a grungy ass bar um, that I scrubbed maybe half an inch of black mold out of the bottom of the refrigerators when we renovated that week. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. So, you know, it was nasty and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> and um, the people who hired me, you know, had me help them kind of almost a consulting basis, I feel like, at this point, because I helped them get up and running. They had some other projects in mind. They had hired, a, I was like the GM of the collective of bars that they planned to open. And then the kid who they hired had just moved back here from like Chicago because his family lived here. And they hired him to like run that project. And he and I worked together and we got it open and the other two things fell apart and they couldn't afford to keep us both, and he was running that bar, and so I was pretty quickly um, looking for something else, right? So it wasn't, they, I didn't get like fired, it was just like the whole plan fell through. So that really was kind of awful, but I had been involved in the Young Pros at VM Hill Valley, and I called up 
um, my friend Megan and was like, hey, are you looking for any help? Because I really don't want to go back to wine right now. This bar thing fell through. I just need a job. And she was is the owner of Lifestyle Properties. And she had, at that time, we built up to 36 luxury vacation rentals here in the Valley. Um, she still owns it. I think they have several more properties. It's a much larger thing now, but still very small comparatively. Um, and I went to work for her as her GM uh, for a year. And it was a really, really interesting experience. But I got to bring my connections from the wine industry to the travel industry. And I think at that point, you know, Airbnb was just taking off here and the counties didn't have and the city councils and whatever didn't have local um, tax appropriation laws, um, lodging laws, because of, I guess, Thousand Friends of Yamhill County is the whole thing. We don't want too much lodging or too much urban sprawl, and I can understand all of that. But I got to be a part of those conversations, which was so, so cool. So like some local government influence um, and how they ended up doing the taxes um, initially, which was really neat. And then from there, um, I worked there about a year. Uh, I went through a breakup of a long-term relationship. And then I moved back to McMinnville for a short time um, and then got a, a job. Ah, gosh, where did I work at that point? Where did I go? Saffron Fields, Lifestyle, or the Oak Lifestyle Properties. Oh, I ran into Sarah Horner at an ITC tasting event. And I was like, oh my God, it's been so long. I think we were at North Valley. And um, I was like, I think I'm gonna kind of try to get back into wine. Are you guys looking for anyone at Montenor? And she went, <gasps> yes, actually. Oh my gosh, here's my card, call me. So we talked and I ended up running their tasting room for a little, about, about a year. I had a wonderful experience there. Um, it was such a cool, very different from White Rose, very different from Irie, different price point, different varietals, different philosophies. I learned all about um, biodynamic farming there. Actually, we had um, a, a uh, the guy from Demeter came over and did a whole biodynamic conference and I helped put that together and it was just so cool. Um, and then I got poached by Jackson family shortly after that. Um, I ran the tasting room at Willa Kenzie Estate for a couple of years and learned a lot there too. Jackson family came in and bought up a couple of properties right around that time. Um, at that point they had purchased Willa Kenzie, they had uh, Zena Crown Vineyard, Penner Ash, that's right, um, and then they hadn't purchased, no, they, yeah, 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 because Grand Moraine Vineyard became Grand Moraine Winery, that all happened at the same time. Anyway, so I knew that they were in town, they were very controversial, um, and I said, are they gonna pay me enough to come in and clean it up? Because that's basically what they hired me to do, and um, it was more money than I had ever made. It was better benefits than I had ever had. And I still maintain that Jackson family swooped in um, in a really cool sort of classy way, um, despite the local like drama surrounding it. Um, they really inserted themselves in the community and um, paid their freaking employees. And I think they forced the surrounding, you know, wine industry to kind of step up and look at what they were doing and how were they going to keep good talent and 
Um, I think the answer is always pay your people. They're worth it most of the time. <laughs> Sometimes they're not, let me get rid of them. But you know, I, yeah, I, anyway, I still value paying your employees and I hope to be able to do that myself someday. Um, so Jackson family, and then I had moved to Portland and I was actually, <laughs> I was short staffed that summer and um, I had a woman out on FMLA and that was my first time navigating something like that. And I ended up working regularly like seven days a week and I was commuting over an hour each way from Southeast Portland. I didn't have any kids, I didn't have a dog. You know, I don't have kids still, but I just sort of did it. Mm -hmm. um, but it did lead to some pretty heavy burnout. Mm -hmm. And I ended up calling someone that I had met sort of through doing weddings at Saffron Fields. Um, Renee Gorham and she and her husband John had the Toro Bravo restaurant group and I didn't know Renee well but I really thought I wanted to work in a sought-after locally owned you know uh, anyway so John and Renee had several restaurants and I really wanted to work there they were just so cool so Renee was like yeah where do you want to work and I wanted to work at Mediterranean Exploration Company and so I did end up working there for a while while I was also training um, to be one of the managers at Plaza del Toro eventually. Uh, they had just moved from the east side to the Pearl District, uh, closer to the restaurant that I had been working at. And that commute from Southeast Portland was a lot easier. I learned to navigate the Max that year and the, and the bus system and everything in Portland. And, and um, it was awesome. Uh, it was really great public transportation. So anyway, this is 2017. So. I go to work for them for a little over a year and let's see, the pandemic hits. <laughs> uh, their new plaza location became a community um, soup kitchen type thing. And then John said some like kind of racist, home, not kind of, he said some racist and homophobic things and got run out of town. And, and um, that half of the restaurant group sort of imploded at that point. And um, I was on unemployment and I, cause I didn't actually end up doing the soup kitchen with them. I, I got unemployment right as, as things were happening. And I got, was one of the lucky ones to get it early and off to wait through the whole pandemic unemployment debacle. I was very, very blessed. So. I was living in my first ever apartment by myself. It was like a 575 square foot studio in the Mississippi area, North Portland. And I was loving life, but I was literally like stuck in a box through the 2020 shutdown. Um, and not working, you know. I ended up meeting the man who became my partner for several years um, at that time, and we started dating and then moved in together uh, in December of 2020. And then that was here in McMinnville, and he actually owns a winery, and so that's where I got like the introduction to that side of the business, the actual like live and breathe it because it's yours <laughs> situation. And that was quite an adventure. He 
really dedicated himself to that work and it was I, I loved being a part of that I got to go down for harvest and cook lunches and um, figure out creative ways to be with him while he was doing harvest um, so that was a lot of fun I enjoyed that time and we were living in McMinnville for like six months and then we moved back up to West Lynn and so I got back to Portland pretty quickly after and then I moved to my current place in John's Landing last September uh, after we parted ways, but I am loving living in Portland. But through that time, I like didn't work for a year. I trained and managed a Starbucks for like six months. And then I hated that very much. Uh, <laughs> and this is at the time where, you know, all this like unionizing is happening and I am, I am very pro-union in a lot of ways, but it made it very difficult to be a store manager uh, between the staff and the company and all of that. And just, there was a lot to, to hate about that job. Um, and then I went to work for some time just before that actually in child welfare. I worked for the Native uh, organization, NICWA. It's the National Indian Child Welfare Association. One of my friends from high school actually um, moved to Portland several years before and was the um, head of that organization here based in Portland, so I went to work for her for a while just to kind of like work from home, try to figure out what I wanted. I wasn't ready to go back really and work with the public. I definitely wanted to work from home if I could and that was just like gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, hard work and I then went to Starbucks and then kind of hated that and then I worked at Vino Volo for a while in the airport. I left Starbucks, went to a wedding out in Providence with like me and my other last friend from high school standing that were unmarried and so I'm winning, I win. Uh, <laughs> um, can, yeah. Anyway, so um, I went to Providence, Rhode Island for her wedding and I came back and I started working at Vino Volo and during that time Tom was really, really encouraging of me to um, maybe do my own thing. My dad had been telling me for years because he was a major entrepreneur um, that he thought that I would be best to be my own boss and try to figure out how to do that. And I was really lucky that even back when I was at White Rose, um, I made friends with Jack Cranley and he has backcountry wine tours, but I think it's backcountry now because it was backroads before. That's right. So when he was backroads, um, he would come up to White Rose a lot. I then brought him over to Saffron Fields. We hosted a Pinot Blanc party together at Saffron Fields where the industry was so cool. Um, and he actually had me over the years sort of pinch hit for him when he was short a driver and I always loved extra money so I did it and I loved it. It was a blast. Um, all of those single serving friendships, you know, and telling people the things you love about the valley and getting to show them around to your favorite places was, was really rad and so it was a win-win. And let's see, so during COVID lockdown and kind of figuring out my next move, you know, my, my, my dad was very encouraging of me doing something entrepreneurial and he was like, well, you really like that wine tour thing, like maybe do that. And so I really thought about it. I took an entrepreneur's class um, through PSU and decided to do it. So I was at Vino Volo. They were really flexible with me the whole time. Um, I didn't have to work weekends so I could keep them open for tours. And then, you know, I, re I launched at the beginning of 23. Um, this has been a very challenging year to launch a business based in tourism. 
domestically because everybody went to Europe. Now that you can travel to Europe. And it was really unfortunate for all of us. <laughs> um, wineries are feeling it, tour companies are feeling it. You know, I think I did something like 10 tours this year and I have another one coming up, you know, but it hasn't totally run dry, but it's just um, looking forward to next year um, because I know that tourism is gonna come back and we all just kind of didn't have the best of luck this year. I have no doubt at this point uh, that it's gonna be successful because my experience in this valley and my connections and the longevity of my career and even the trajectory, however chaotic um, my career has been, I feel like has led me to this place. And I have been able to partner with people who are really my friends. Justina, this is her winery now. Um, she and I have been through absolute thick and thin together through the worst breakups and moves and loss and all kinds of things together over the last 10 years. And um, we both own our own businesses now? Like, what? It's so crazy to me, uh, but it's exciting, and I'm proud of us. And um, partnering with, with people like Justina and um, her wine club, helping me promote my business and doing cross-promotion, like, on social media and whatnot. It's just been an amazing blessing. Um, and I'm not religious, but I still believe in blessings. <laughs> so I want to come back and catch up on the, on the wine business the tour business, but I want to talk about the, the your, kind of your time in hospitality and some of the things you talked about there. Obviously, uh, it's a lot of small businesses in Oregon wine, a lot of people who are looking to do what you're doing and sort of trying to make it work in a place where there's not a lot of high paying or, or full-time jobs. So tell me a little bit about that, about sort of finding your way through and dealing with some of those struggles um, and seeing people around you sort of dealing with them as well. I'm sort of curious about your time in that, in that arena and what you got out of it. I have always been a pretty hard worker. I mean, I've had a job since I was 15, I think. Um, and I grew up on a farm. And so, you know, in, in my time as a struggling young gun, if you will, in the industry, uh, I just had multiple jobs, like, all the time <laughs> when I could. But, you know, I had some big roles in, in my early days and that weren't really um, money makers, but they were important. And that made side gigs a challenge. I was really lucky at the time to be partnered as well um, for like my first five years here uh, with somebody who was able to, you know, take on a little bit more of the load as far as like bills and rent and stuff goes. But um, it's hard. We've all had to just like struggle and like wake up early and stay up late. You know, like I said, when I was at Irie, I was also working at um, Community Plate and I was going in there to open the coffee shop at like 5.30 in the morning, I think. And then I would get off at nine and I'd have to be at Irie at 10. And I'd work till five or six, you know? So I, I had a lot of 12 hour days in those, in those days. Um, but I was young and, you know, I, I could do it. But not everybody can and so that really, uh, I, re I recognize that <clears throat> I know a lot of people, yeah, who worked at multiple tasting rooms and had to work around schedules like that, or they did just events at one winery and they worked full time at another. Uh, there were a lot of ways to, to stay in the industry and do that, but it's, it was challenging to not really know um, where that extra was going to come from sometimes. Mm -hmm. So. 
what I, I know you didn't always you didn't stay in it consecutively through you came you kind of came and went but what kept you around wine and what kept other people around wine what what were the what were the draw what was the draw I think it goes back to lifestyle. We were able, even though we didn't make a lot of money, to, to live a lifestyle, um, get invited and be able to conduct really cool like winemaker dinners and get to go to IPNC because maybe you work for a really generous person who gave you an extra ticket. I think that, yeah, get, working in you know events like IPNC and, and winemakers dinners and just like the generosity of the owners of so many of the wineries, um, whether they're new or old, I think that really helped us stay. Um, it, if you're into that, you know, I think that that doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't appeal to everyone, but those of us who like like that kind of lavish lifestyle, it just made sense to keep, keep it coming, you know, I'll get there one day. Um, I think we've all, I think a bunch of my friends, you know, we would have big dinners at our houses as opposed to like going out to some fancy feast because we could all, like at a local restaurant or something, because we could all bring our own wine and we all had really crazy stuff in our cellars that were like, only like real collectors have some of the bottles that we had, you know, and, and it was just because we worked there and we were gifted those bottles or we got to buy it at a discount, you know. Um, I think that was a really important aspect too is that we, as an industry, it's very reciprocal um, as far as like discounts and things, um, making it a little more accessible to those of us in the industry who maybe aren't making a ton of money. So when it came time to start the wine tour company, tell me about sort of the process for you of figuring out sort of name and 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 uh, sort of method, I guess. Like what? How did you want to do it, and why did you do it the way you did? Yeah, um, that's awesome. The name is hilarious. So the scissor tail flycatcher is the state bird of Oklahoma and it's beautiful. It has this long, gorgeous tail and it's, it's um, a really, really pretty bird. And a lot of the things in Oklahoma are scissor tail park and scissor tail this, that, and the other. And it's, um, it's great for branding. Um, and my father was gifted a piece of artwork from a woman in Oklahoma who's a wonderful acrylic artist. And it's in, it's actually hanging in my parents' bedroom. It's this big scissor tail. And it's this beautiful pink and blue sky, uh, which often are the sunsets in Oklahoma. And it's this bird on a wire and it's just this gorgeous scissor tail. And I saw that and was just enamored by it. And that image had always been in my head. And we joke, this is terrible, we joke in my family. Um, my sister, it's just my sister and I, we all have a really incredible relationship, I will preface. Uh, but we joke, like, when you die, I want that. <laughs> it's so nasty to say, but like, we, it's a joke. Cause my sister and I are never gonna fight over anything. And my parents don't have all that much like super valuable stuff so like my mom slipped in a couple of years ago to my stocking this really hilarious santa uh that she got at a craft show when i was a kid but it's always been christmas decor in my life <laughs> and so i had said like that's mine when you die so she like gave it to me early <laughs> i was you know just goofy um so the name of my company is scissor tail wine tours because it's all i could think of <laughs> like, I swear to you. So I wanted it to be about me because my company is based on my experience in the wine industry, my 
rather exclusive connections with people who don't have tasting rooms, who taste in their living rooms like Mo Ayub, you know, um, I can get you in there. And so I wanted my company to be based on me. And that also had to do with the name. Um, it was literally the first thing I thought of. Um, I wanted it to be about me, and I wanted it to also be a conversation starter, but I didn't want it to be something totally on the nose wine related. I think Cellar Door is a great name for a tour company. Um, Mark and Helen have been working for years, um, you know, building their brand and all of that, and I've become quite great friends with them both. And, um, you know, then you've got Backcountry, which I think is, you know, in and of itself a cool name, but. It's not necessarily a conversation starter. Mm -hmm. And I wanted people to be like, Scissor Tail, like, what is that? Because it gave me an excuse to then tell them, you know? Uh, and the more you get into a conversation with me, the <laughs> more charm I can turn on and hopefully sell you a wine tour. <laughs> um, but anyway, I. I just literally couldn't think of anything else. It was the first thing I wrote down. I ran it by all my friends. I asked my family to like put together a few words that remind you of me and my industry and blah, 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 blah. And like, we just couldn't think of anything else. And it stuck and it was, it, it felt right. So my dear friend got her graphic design on. She's a professional graphic designer and she did my website, my branding for free. Um, my friend Danielle Comer, she's another Oklahoma girl who lives out here, did a bunch of photography for me for free. I really, 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 Jack Cranley told me I could steal his terms and conditions off of his website for free. You know, it's like I just made all of these incredible connections and relationships inside and outside the wine industry that led me to this place of, of being able to start a company. Mm -hmm. My dad, um, gave me some cash to get the van as like a down payment, you know? Um, so I bought a Kia Carnival. Uh, I love it very much. And I'm learning that maybe I need something bigger, but you know, I've been living and learning through this whole thing. So, so what did you want to do? And what did you, what did you think was sort of unique about what you could bring? <sighs> Connection to the industry directly um, as an actual wine professional. There aren't a lot of other people in the tourism side, uh, or sorry, the, the wine tour side, that actually have worked at a winery. And maybe they did, and maybe they worked events and that kind of thing. Doesn't mean that their knowledge and connections are any better, it, they're just different. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of insider knowledge when it comes to not only like, how hard the 13 harvest was, and I have stories from that, you know, or learning some crazy things that go on in the industry that, you know, you, you can tell those stories because you learned them directly from the horse's mouth, you know? Um, and I also, yeah, I've been a wine professional and I wanna share my connections and my history and um, my, my knowledge with people. I don't want to just be a driver. I will, but eventually I want to be able to pass those types of tours along to people who don't mind just being a driver. Because for me, what you're paying for is an entire ex experience, um, not just 
take me to wine country. I home make the lunches even. Like it's a whole experience. <laughs> so So with the tours you've had so far, tell me how they've gone and how sort of how you found people and how you're kind of looking to expand. Yeah, how I found people, Vino Volo was a huge huge part of finding my first people. Um, I have passed out so many business cards and struck up conversations with people who came directly to a wine bar. So you know you've already got some sort of a connection. Um, and some of those people just are chugging mimosas and they're fun too. But um, it was a really, really big deal to like get to network, especially with locals who were flying out or just early for their flights. My first tour, with uh, my friend Kat. I met her at the airport and she brought a group of girls out in June and it was my first official wine tour. And so I, I, I owe a lot to my time at Vino Volo. Um, yeah, let's see. I've also connected, you know, with Justina's Wine Club members. I have been, I know a lot of the members at Patton Valley because I've been working events with Justina since she started working here like in 14 or 15, um, and, and she now owns the brand, like I was mentioning, but um, <clears throat> partnering with wine clubs, like has added value. Reaching out to uh, my neighbor's dog's doggy daycare. I'm getting creative because you have to, like there are untapped potential, you know, what people don't really think about um, when establishing your clientele. And like putting a poster up and saying, I have a dog friendly wine tour company. You want to go to wine country, you know, little things like that. And a lot, mostly word of mouth. Um, my analytics for my website and things are, are average at best. You know, they're not great. I don't think people are finding me yet, like organically through Yelp or through um, TripAdvisor. I think that it has all been based on connection, personal connection and word of mouth. So you mentioned obviously the part of what you want to bring is sort of the insider knowledge and what you what you having done it and been there and all, all of that. So so tell me about how they've gone so far and how you how you want to see them grow. Right. Thank you. Um, they've gone great. I have so much fun on wine tours. I had one one mishap that I reconfigured in the last minute and it ended up being a great day. Um, I, I have, uh, I'm a roll with the punches kind of girl and I always have been and perhaps that has something to do with my impulsivity. But I, I definitely have just had a lot of fun and people have, you know, gotten in the van and basically I'm like, have you ever been wine tasting? And half the group says yes, half the group says no. And I'm like, let me just tell you like the basics. It's okay to share. Uh, you don't have to drink everything that's poured for you. Well, why not? We don't want to waste it. You know, you get, it, it takes all kinds for wine tasting, you know? Um, and I haven't had to say no really to anybody, which is cool. Um, I, I can't wait for the day to have to say no to people and be like, I'm sorry, I'm booked. Um, but I also took a lot of inspiration uh, from Siobhan Ball. She and I have become very close friends and you know, 
she kind of has the same theory for her business with Dirty Radish. She is making a little bit of her own wine. She spends time in Lyon and in Mexico and, and places like that for wine-related activities. She does a lot more than I do. But um, her wine tour business is really based on her connections and her experience and being able to be the host and take people to these exclusive places. And she and I have partnered a bit this summer. She actually doesn't have a tour vehicle. And I have been the driver for several of her, her wine country adventures this year. And that has been really cool because she has helped me make additional connections maybe that I didn't yet have. I walked into um, Brickhouse, excuse me, with her one day and Doug Tunnell walks up and says, oh yeah, I know who you are. And I went, I, what? Like, why? Um, but I have been out here for a long time, you know, I guess 11 years at this point. So um, anyway, yeah, I, I have a little bit of imposter syndrome still sometimes. Um, you reaching out to me, I, that, I didn't say it quite directly, but I, I do know people here and I do, um, have a history here that's worth talking about, I think. So I have to remind myself of that sometimes. But anyway, I see it going, you know, the, the way it's going. I'd love to have a couple of vehicles. I'd love to have um, some employees someday. The whole point of starting it was so I could be my own boss, not have to work four jobs, because like literally there was a section of, of, of this quarter that I had four jobs, um, and, and to be able to go home and see my niece that was really the, um, the, the overall goal was however it has to work for me to make enough money to support my lifestyle and be able to travel home as often as I want to see that baby. <laughs> so that was the, that's the goal, you know, and, and, and whatever that takes, what, uh, buying a bigger van, being able to take larger groups, um, offering more diverse experiences um, and still again being the person that you come to when you want an elevated experience and a more exclusive situation I curate every tour based on what the person wants um, I had some people it was a romantic getaway and it was a cold crappy day so I took them to all the places all my favorite places with cozy fireplaces you know I'm always I, I of course, I would love to come to Patton Valley on every tour, but that's not what every person is looking for, you know? So um, I really pride myself in that and having a, a diverse set of connections to put together the right experience for people. And I just want to keep building on that. And I want to make some money, man. Like, come on, that's really at the end of the day, I would like to, you know, make some money, so. But that's not what it's all about. Just a happy byproduct. Oh yeah, happy byproduct. It definitely helps keep me motivated. So. <laughs> so you talked a little bit earlier about kind of your initial impressions of Oregon, and of course you dove right into the industry, so you got to know it right away. So tell me about how you've seen the industry change as you've gotten to know it. How, what's what's different about it now than when you started, and kind of what does it look like to you right now? What does the Oregon wine industry look like to you right now as we sort of wrap up 2023? 
It's a big question. I've seen the industry change a lot. You know, I touched on explaining to people how we don't have as much Pinot Gris anymore because we were growing the wrong clones of Chardonnay initially. And once we figured that out, we were like, oh, Chardonnay can be our own thing stylistically, as well as commands a higher dollar, you know? So winemakers were pretty keen to, to get on that Chardonnay train. And I thought that was, that was great. And so that has changed drastically in the 10 or 11 years that I've been here. Um, I think people are definitely, it's less open house style these days. Um, when I started in this industry, the open and the close of, of the season was Memorial Day weekend. And we ended up doing some pre-Memorial Day weekend to accommodate the demand and then you have you know Thanksgiving and post Thanksgiving weekend and those were traditionally those open houses with that the, the lets would do and the Sokol Blossers and you know people will still come out and say we used to not have to pay for this and we got to take the glass and now it's like well that's not sustainable um, and we have changed things over the years and, and um, people know about us and we've had to broaden the dates to accommodate the traffic. And then I've seen that die off again. Um, there's not as much demand on those weekends anymore. And I think that there's been a shift in people recognizing that it's, I always say, it's not as enjoyable when it's assholes and elbows, you know? <laughs> That's not very nice, but um, it's, it's hard when you're walking up and you're like, I think I'm on number three, you know? And, and then you don't have the connection with the guest or with the person behind the bar. It's literally just pouring shots of wine and cleaning up cheese off the floor, you know? It's, it's um, I think people have recognized that the more intimate experiences are, are worth it. And so there's not as much demand for those crazy weekends and people have really changed it up. The Friendsgiving thing that happened this weekend with Hazel Fern and Hundred Sons and Corollary and I'm missing a couple, but Cho. Cho, yeah, I mean, that was really a cool new concept, you know, getting together and doing that. So I've seen the way we handle those opening and really frankly, there's not an opening and a close of the season anymore. The shoulder season's kind of gone and people still come to wine country when it's rainy and crappy and cold because there's a lot to do out here other than sit on a patio, which, of course, we prefer. <laughs> um, I think I mentioned, you know, watching the pay structures and available benefits change over time. Um, I've really appreciated, I worked for Furioso for a summer through kind of the lockdown pandemic times, and um, I got to have health insurance as a collective situation for the wine industry because we now have Providence, um, a, like a collective wine industry insurance program that you can opt into for your employees if you're a small brand that can't really afford to do it, just you. So we have these amazing changes that have happened because we need it because, you know, at this point our insurance and our health, our health insurance is tied to where we work and um, that makes it hard to be an independent small business owner as well. Um, I've seen, you know, people get start to get paid more because of, you know, bigger brands like Jackson Family coming in, Foley has come in, um, Jadot, Bollinger. Bollinger. You know, all of these major companies coming in who can afford to take better care of their employees, even though they're 
the behemoths that they are, um, that's become less and less controversial, I think. Um, the industry has grown. Oh my God. Like, I think we used to have, I think I used to tell people we had 750 bonded wineries in the Willamette Valley. And we had a time there where we had over a thousand. And then COVID hit. And we had the fires of 2020. And I hope I don't cry because that was like awful. I mean, I got evacuated. Uh, That, that gutted me. It's hard to talk about 2020. Um, it was a hard year. Going from making multiple single vineyard estate wines to having one wine and just hoping to God you could make it through that vintage and have wine to sell and that your people who were already suffering because of COVID lockdowns, they're still gonna buy your wine and pour it at their restaurants across the country. We were all in a bad way at that point, and people lost their asses. Like restaurants, sure, we all know about that, but wineries couldn't go on. People had to dump all their fruit and just throw in the towel, and that happened to my friends. That sucked. <laughs> um, we were super blessed to not have totally lost ourselves because the winery that you know that I was. Um, working with at the time like you know they were making 20,000 cases not four mm -hmm. and they were able to make it you know um and really not lose any employees and have the the wherewithal to navigate all the government help that we had and um you know take care of their people but we had to go back to uh you know oh god as much as we hate the new normal we had to go, you know, get creative about how we were going to host guests again and social distancing and all of that. And it, we got to recreate the way we host people. And what we found out is that <laughs> we're going to sell more wine when you have more intimate experiences with people. Duh. I, you know, but you also, we thought accommodating the numbers was really the way to do it. And really, it's seated private tastings. That's where it's at. Um, people have to make an appointment and they have an allotted amount of time and that's the, we figured out that that's really the way to do it. And some people when, when COVID, you know, lockdowns and mask mandates and things, you know, went away, they stuck to that and they're still doing it and it's working. Um, so I saw that major shift and I just think that the industry grows and we have had our growing pains and we continue to have our growing pains, but we... Um, are still a young uh, region as far as wine goes in this world and even domestically. Um, and we've reinvented the wheel, I think, on some things that were unnecessary. But I appreciate, you know, now in Oregon, we claim to be purists about our Pinot Noir and we're not blending things into it. And that's now a law. You know, we have to disclose what's in the bottle here in Oregon. And I think that that's brilliant. And it also gives me a reason to be a little hoity-toity about, you know, Oregon wine versus other Pinot Noir. Um, yeah, I think that that's kind of the changes that I've seen. Where's it heading? What happens next to the Oregon wine industry? We always say we don't want to be Napa. And I think that's true. And I'll be honest, I love going to Napa. I went to Bottle Rock for my first time this year and got to see some incredible artists and I camped and it was, it was amazing. Um, but honest to God, I think the best wine that I had when I was down there was the wine I brought. 
I went to some pretty serious tastings um, of brands even that I used to sell, you know, in Oklahoma as a broker who I have direct contact with. I, I just still appreciate the, maybe the rusticity, if you will, of Oregon wine. Um, but I think that we might get to become Sonoma and I think that's cool and I think that's okay because I think we were just Oregon for a long time and now we have world-class chefs and restaurants and then the, the old you know guard is still there like Tina's and the Joel Palmer house and um, the Painted Lady, you know, all of these restaurants are still here and they're still well-loved and we have Okta now and we have um, Cypress, the new restaurant at the Atticus Hotel. We have the Atticus Hotel and we have just so much more to offer. Um, and it's gonna draw a higher end type of clientele. Not that that didn't exist before because it was sort of a hidden gym, but I really feel like now we have it all kind of to offer at various levels. Um, you can still come for a weekend or a day trip and just go to the great wineries on 99 and buy a couple of inexpensive bottles of wine from them if you want to. They obviously have more expensive wines and wonderful things, but, um, and, and be just a quick inexpensive getaway. Or you can come down and stay for a week and you can stay at Atticus Hotel or um, what's the new one above Okta? Oh, uh, uh, Tributary. Yeah, Tributary or any of the incredible luxury Airbnbs that we have and eat at Okta and eat at Pinch. And I just think that it's, I, that obviously excites me. I, I light up when I talk about food and wine and luxury because I want to be part of that experience for people, that elevated experience. Or like I did this weekend, we could just listen to hip hop the whole weekend and just, you know, enjoy that. Um, it doesn't have to be pretentious. It needs to be fun. I think that Oregon is growing in a good direction. Um, the wine quality's always been here. Uh, but having different things to offer, I think, is really gonna help us. So obviously, you've, you've done a lot of things in a fairly short amount of time here. Uh, I think that's an understatement. Yeah. Um, you have your new thing, and, uh, and it's still getting off the ground. So tell me, tell me about your future, what you're looking ahead to, and you mentioned some, sort of some of it, like what the the end goal to be able to you know to be able to afford what you want to do. What else is sort of in your future, uh, wine related or otherwise, that you're looking ahead to? Um, well, Orla and I will hopefully be together for the next 15 years or so, and I hope to provide a good life for my dogs um, and myself by way of having freedom and flexibility in my schedule and just kind of maintaining that. Growing my business, like, you know, having a few employees, having a couple of, um, being able to take care of my employees, having a couple of vehicles. Um, I'm still young, I'm 35, I'm single, I'm working too much. I've dealt with some scary health stuff this year. I just want to stay healthy and happy and be my own boss and have, I don't know, you know, professionally, this is the plan. I would like for Scissor Tail Wine Tours to take me into retirement. Um, so I don't really have a five-year plan, you know, to go anywhere. This is, this is it, I hope. But I will always have the wine industry and the restaurant industry to fall back on. Um, I have a ton of experience 
however you know short those little spurts of experience are. So I always know I've got a backup plan. Um, do I? I get the question a lot. Are you ever going to move home? And frankly, no. Uh, I love being from Oklahoma. There's a lot about growing up where I grew up that is special, really special. But somebody would be having to like be on their deathbed for me to move home, honestly, and I would still probably keep a place here. I hate to say it, but um, politics have been really ugly, not to just make it about that, but like, it's, I, don't, I don't feel safe in Oklahoma right now. There's a lot of places I don't feel safe as a woman, and um, that's a real thing. And so until they can get their act together, there's no way. I feel safe in Oregon. It's a little too liberal sometimes, but I feel, I feel like we taking care of our neighbors and ourselves. And like, to me, that's what matters, so. With that said, uh, and given the experiences you've had, I'm curious what your advice would be to someone who was kind of in your shoes, you know, 10 years ago or so, looking to get into the Oregon wine industry specifically, and what, what would you tell them and what would your sort of words of wisdom be? You've gotta be ready to work. Um, sure, we make a little better money these days than we did whenever I was starting out, but you have to be ready to work. Um, maybe save some money before you take that crazy deep dive into a brand new life halfway across the country from everything you know. Um, and never stop learning. Um, keep an open mind. In wine, if it, I even put this on my website, like if, if somebody tells you they know everything there is to know about wine, they're they're wrong, <laughs> they're lying. You know, um, I never stop learning. You know, don't get set in your ways too much, um, and enjoy it. Siobhan and I were in the gorge this weekend, and we were driving, and I text my parents, and I took a picture of just this, and it's just beautiful here, and like keep appreciating that, but I was like, Mom and Dad, it is so ugly here. I cannot believe I have to look at this shit. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just, it's freaking amazing here. Um, and just to, you know, chin up, get outside, just be happy, lean into it. It's a lot, but it's really worth it. It's really worth it. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to talk about? I thought it was a really cool um, thing you mentioned, like asking about mentors. And I feel really honored to have had the mentors that I've had. Um, whether they know they were big mentors or not, they were. And I, I would love to have the opportunity to sort of like mention them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. So, um, yeah, when you when you sent me like I, I was nervous. I, I was like, what, are, what do I need to be prepared to talk about? Otherwise, I will come unprepared <laughs> and say the wrong things and um, talk in circles. But uh, I do, I was really lucky to start out at Irie. I was selling those wines in Oklahoma for a couple of years. That was really fun, you know, the first winery in the Willamette Valley and all of that. And I got to go work for Jason. And Annika hired me, Annika Miller. She has Burton Bittman now, which I am so proud of her. But she knew me from my trip out here in July, and we just got uh, had a nice connection, and she offered me a role there. 
But the, where the mentorship really came in was with Ed Gans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's at Domaine Drouin now. He lives down the road from them. But he was a professor at Linfield for a long time, and his wife is now. Mm-hmm. And he was a tasting room manager at Irie, and he really he taught me how to tasting room. You know, um, I I learned everything I knew up to that point about being in the tasting room from Ed. And we remained friends, and he shared in the trials and tribulations of, you know, the wine industry. And I just thought it was, it was I think it was maybe one of his first, like, actual wine jobs as well. But we really enjoyed our time together in that cold <laughs> tasting room. Um, and he has just been a bright spot in my career. So I really think that uh, he's the reason I knew that I could do the tasting room. So the other person is Sarah Horner. Sarah poached me uh, from my job in vacation rental management to come work with her at Montenor. And she has become the auntie I didn't have. I I have wonderful aunts, I will be clear. Um, But she and I became really, really close on a personal level as well as professionally. We could share in the joys and the highs and the lows. Uh, We've both had an interesting career trajectory and we've shared the punches and encouraged each other through it. And it's been a really special relationship over the years. I'm so grateful for her and yeah, she's, she's a really, really amazing person to know. So I've been really excited to learn from her over all these years as well. So, yeah. I am honored. I, this is so weird. I think I mentioned to you that, like, I have total imposter syndrome about sitting here with you right now. I Who am I in the wine industry? But I've been here for a long time, and I do have stories to share and experience. And um, I guess people do know me. You know, and uh, my reputation sometimes precedes itself, I guess. But I love that. I love to have the connections that I have. And I guess I can I can accept that my stories are worth telling. <laughs> and worth archiving. Worth archiving. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate the time and, and taking and sharing with us and sharing your dogs with us. Yeah. Bringing a little bit of chaos to our otherwise placid world. Yeah, I, sure, sure. You <laughs> used the word placid about the wine industry. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> I knew they'd calm down eventually, but, you know. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate your time, and we'll let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, so cool. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.